Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're bringing you some interesting, in fact, delicious and important products. The common theme, I guess, is they're all a little bit spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit spicy. They are, actually. Um, Um, But, yeah. Uh, Not only that, multinational do. Right. Well, we're big fans of... um, our first guest, Burlap and Barrel, and we have um, co-owner, partner, Ori Zohar here. Um, we've also talked to Ethan, his partner, before, and we love their product. And um, uh, Ori's going to talk to us a little bit about the process of getting these wonderful spices. Um, and uh, he's going to be talking a lot about his recent experiences in Vietnam. So let's hear it for Burlap and Barrel, Ori Zohar. I think our regular listeners by now know that um, uh, I'm playing favorites with my most favorite special spice company when I talk to somebody from Burlap and Barrel. Um, we, we we're talking to Ori, um, a Zohar, who's the uh, partner with Ethan, who we've talked to before. And, oh, they have such an interesting company and such an interesting, though I would say very demanding, life. Can you give us just a capsule, um, brief description of Burlap and Barrel, the company? Yeah, absolutely. This is Ori Zohar, and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having us back on your show. Um, a little bit about Burlap and Barrel. Uh, we just turned three years old this February, and we're a single-origin spice company. So most spices change hands 15 to 20 times, take three to 10 years to get into the country. And they're kind of in the way that coffee and tea and chocolate used to be, where coffee used to just be black coffee, and that's all. And now we get Guatemalan, shade-grown, medium-roast, and we've kind of been able to get much better stuff but through kind of clear and transparent supply chains. We're doing a similar thing for spices, um, and so we work directly with farmers. We find these entrepreneurial, ambitious farmers that are growing exceptional spices that the commodity market doesn't really care for, doesn't want to pay a premium for, and we pay them significantly more. We register them to be their own direct exporters with the FDA. We send trucks to their farms and field and bring incredibly fresh, incredibly well-sourced spices. How do you to find the these people? Where do you, how do you source these farms? Yeah, that's a great question. It's always, it's always kind of from a different source. We met with a handful of farmers in northern Vietnam that we knew through somebody who we knew was a chef in New York City, and her cousin was actually growing in one in northern Vietnam where they grow star anise. Every so often we meet with the local government agencies that will take us around and introduce us to farmers. Sometimes we're with nonprofits or NGOs. It's the, the, the way that we find the farmers is always a little bit different, whether it's through friends or professional contacts or local government contacts, but it's always really clear when we found the right farmer because they have a super clean, super professional approach to growing the spices. They're really ambitious in what they're trying to do, and they have extremely strong feelings about why they do the things they do them, um, which and what leads to the really great quality of the spices that they're growing. Yeah, now, now you've got you've got some fairly risky business out there. I was I was reading about your saffron, and your your saffron yes, comes yeah. comes from the border of Afghanistan and Iran. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm getting some uh, of that, by the way. Ooh. I'm, I'm going to. What are some of that? Good, good, but, but it still seems it seems a little shaky. I mean, <laughs> didn't, didn't you worry a little bit when well, we shot well, that general? Well, he's not traveling luxury at this point. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. Um, we we go to meet spice farmers wherever spices are being grown, um, and you know the 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 folks in Afghanistan. It's really interesting. It's it's a cooperative of folks that that are growing the saffron over there, and Afghanistan is really built a pretty meaningful uh, saffron industry, you know, in the past few years. Initially, Spain was the main one, and then Iran started growing and providing the majority of the saffron for the world. And we've even seen crazy numbers, like how Spain grows 1,500 kilograms of saffron a year, but they export 18,000 kilograms. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, yeah. questions on where some of these spices are coming from. Exactly. In Afghanistan, we work with a nonprofit there that works on removing mines, uh, from what used to be farmland and restoring it back to being farmland. Oh, there you go. And so, 
we're really grateful to be able to travel and to go to these places. We don't go seeking out danger or really feel like, you know, we're, we're in danger as we're traveling. It's been just really wonderful to meet these farmers and get to know their worlds and all that. And luckily through either local guides or connections or government representatives or whoever, we know that we're in good hands whenever we're traveling to these places. Was it was it in Spain or in Italy where we met the old man who was the head of the Saffron Consortium? I don't remember. One, one, one of our trips, it was an area which had been growing saffron for a very long time but wasn't growing very much anymore. But we met this elderly gentleman who was, who was the head of the consortium which controlled this supply source for saffron, but it was in either Spain or Italy, and I can't remember which. Yeah, I don't remember either. But, uh, yeah, and saffron is so difficult to, to you know, it, it's difficult to grow. Every oh, flower yeah. that opens up produces three stamens that you kind yes, of get. Uh, and so <laughs> I was, I at one point wanted to grow it in my front garden, but I, just, I read about it and decided, no, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. he, but here's a man who knows his spices because he knows how to recognize a fake. Saffron thread. Yeah. yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. The reason yeah, I'm getting his is because, I mean, they, it's variegated in color. I've never read that anywhere, Ori. The yeah, ghosts are yeah. white, and that proves that it's real, right? Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of, we do this in restaurants a lot, because many chefs, you know, just, it's the first insight for our business that helped us realize that there was something to be built here is, meeting with chefs and seeing how excited they were getting about the spices because they have access to all the best ingredients in the world. Uh-huh. And they were getting excited with some spices that my co-founder Ethan was bringing into the country and his checked luggage and all, it's all the way at the beginning of the business before it even existed. Uh-huh. We were, we, we knew that there was an opportunity here to do something more. And so we would go into restaurants and if you put a thread of saffron inside of, of a glass of kind of warm water, there are a few kind of tells that it's, that it's not genuine saffron. Cheaper or fake saffron will, they'll take another part of the plant and dye it and then they'll yeah. twist it by hand. And so when you see this kind of color immediately release into the water, where you see this thing starting to unfurl, <laughs> you, you, you should have some questions because the saffron threads don't, don't untwist because that's how they come. They're already kind of slightly twisted and that's, oh. that's how they arrive. Okay, so you were just now in Vietnam, and uh, so we were going to talk about these spices that you found there. Um, I haven't tasted any of them, so you need to start from scratch explaining to me about them, like starting with royal cinnamon. How is that different from cinnamon that we know? Yeah, so in general, there are a few different types of cinnamon that we're familiar with. There's the Ceylon cinnamon, which is a little bit less sweet and more citrusy. It's, that's the type of cinnamon that you find in Mexican cuisine. Mm-hmm. Then there's the cassia, which is sweeter and a little bit spicy. And there's a Vietnamese version of cassia, and people argue over whether it's a distinct one or if it's an evolution or a sibling or whatever. But what we know is Saigon cinnamon um, is grown in, in Vietnam, and it's known for being especially sweet and especially spicy. And this is the cinnamon that you want in your pastries and in your sweets, where you want that, like, strong and bright cinnamon flavor. And it's the spice industry is funny. It's bark. Yeah. So cinnamon is tree bark, right? And so these trees grow for 20-plus years. The more, the longer you let the tree grow, the more valuable the bark is. And we found the cinnamon in central Vietnam. Even though it's always called Saigon cinnamon, which is in the southern end of Vietnam, no cinnamon grows around Saigon. It's just where it was exported from. So when it came to America, people were like, I guess it's Saigon Cinnamon. <laughs> that name kind of stuck. And so cinnamon is now grown in the north and in the center. And in the center was known for the highest quality cinnamon. And we found out from some of the cinnamon farmers there that parents will give ch- their children a plot of, of land with cinnamon trees on it when they're around 9 to 12 years old. Really? And then the longer they can care for it, the more valuable the bark becomes. And they're planting new trees and all that because you have to take down the tree when you're ready to harvest the bark. But it's literally a savings account. And so if I can wait for it to grow to be 20 years instead of harvesting it at 10 years, um, it's going to be worth a lot more. Well, now, when you take the bark off of it, I mean, do you are you able to to take it off in such a way that you preserve the tree, or does that finish the tree? No, so that ends up, they take down the trees to take the bark down, and Mm -hmm. so they take the bark off, and then the wood gets used for firewood, for furniture, for other projects like that, 
And actually, in some countries, the cinnamon tree leaves are also used as a bay leaf alternative. And so we have some of those from Zanzibar on our site where the farmers were initially throwing them away. And we're like, no, 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 guys, hold on to these, dry them, pack them for us. And we were able to bring it in, and they're beautiful in a pot of rice or really anywhere. You know, I tried that, and I didn't notice anything special about it. You sent us some of those leaves, and I didn't well, notice well, so, that they, they were so wonderful. Yeah. Well, next time, try maybe try instead of one, try two leaves or try more. Maybe we're, we'll, we'll keep sending them to you until you fall in love with it. You know, you tell us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving on. Well, I have next is purple striped garlic. Yeah, so so there is a cooperative of farmers in northern Vietnam that grow this garlic, which is much smaller than the garlic that we're used to. Uh-huh. Um, the teeth are almost like the size of, like, uh, the top of your pinky, you know. Um, and in Vietnam, they kept asking us why garlic in America is so big and watery. <laughs> we're like, we, what do you mean? Well, and you they know, this garlic. elephant garlic doesn't have any flavor at all. Right, right, and it's so often used in, in home cooking, and you're like, why am I even adding this? <laughs> like, what is it What is it to adding to my meal? And so this garlic is, is smaller. It's called purple stripe because there are purple stripes that run up the side of the, like, the husk of the garlic um, on, the, on the outside before the skin is peeled off. Uh-huh. And it and it smells like a roasted garlic. It, I feel like there are notes in there of like basil and lemongrass. And it's just like, it's, it's a garlic, but it feels like a grown-up garlic. It smells like almost like walking around the streets of Vietnam. You get this like intense, powerful, spicy aroma of garlic, but a bunch of other stuff mixed in there. And we, we fell in love with it because we wanted a garlic that was, that, that would represent what, what garlic really should taste like, even when it's dry. And this one just knocks it out of the park. Okay, next I have is buffalo ginger. Yeah, so in the same group that grows the garlic, they also grow this ginger, and it's called buffalo ginger because it's like a kind of bigger, knobbier type of a ginger. Um, and again, I think garlic and ginger are two spices that people typically use fresh whenever they can, and mm-hmm. then use dry when they need to. Yeah. And so this ginger also is, is big and robust. This one's really sweet. Um, it's really fruity, and it's actually relatively spicy. I made a chai masala out of this um, the other day, and, and oh my God, I burned my mouth off. Out of the heat. Really? Um, but it, but it's a really lively ginger, and in general, ginger can be used a lot as a as I just like to add it to stir fries, um, even to chilies, even into like um, like to rubs for chicken or things like that. Just to kind of it, it's almost like a beautiful background flavor and a lot of things that just kind of kicks up the flavor and brings a little bit more life to them. It's it's a, a lifesaver if you've been food poisoned if you put it in tea. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Which you know, since what I do, <laughs> I mean, I, I've had many occasions with the food poison. Oh my God, you're too adventurous of an eater, I guess. <laughs> so anyhow, um, so the, you, you don't have the fresh. Is there any way of getting fresh buffalo ginger? So we, we've looked into what it would take to bring fresh spices, but the way that we work in this is that because our spices are shelf-stable, we can, like, bring them in, we can store them. We don't have to worry about this whole crazy supply chain that, that like, produce farmers, you know, and grocery stores have to think about all the time, which is what's the temperature, when was it picked, what's the humidity, what's the this. By the time they're dried, they're shelf-stable, they're good for years, you know, without really decreasing in quality. And so... That's, that's the business that we're able to, to move and to bring all these things in from all around the world. Once you start bringing in fresh, fresh things, that's, I leave that to some, to some of the grocery experts that, that know a lot more about that than I do. Now, I, I read a piece, um, I forget where it was. It was in some magazine, I think probably a food magazine, um, about peppercorns. And that was so interesting. I mean, they're very mysterious, these peppercorns. And you're talking about in Vietnam, you've got purple ones? Yeah, so Vietnam is now the largest producer of peppercorns in the world. Um, in general, peppercorns are something we just grind over our food all day long without putting too much thought into it. And what's actually really interesting is that peppercorns grow off of plants that are vines. They're climbing vines. And yeah. the peppercorns come in bunches, like grapes. And so... What's, and they have other similarities to grapes, too, in that, you know, when they, when they come on the vine, the outside of it, the black skin of the peppercorn, 
is like the the like a raisin, right? And so inside there's this white white pit, and that's where all the heat comes from. On the outside, the crinkly skin is the dried fruit. And peppercorns, when they're on the vine, they start as green, which is where they're usually picked because that's when they're the hardiest and it's the quickest to pick them that way, and it's the easiest, and they're not going to spoil. But some really skilled farmers, from green, they turn yellow and then orange and then red and then this, like, dark purple. And that's when you get just a, a, a purely ripe fruit. And so these purple peppercorns, we brought it from Vietnam. We found these two farmers that, that are these young guys. One is in his, like, mid-20s. One is in his early 30s. And they're in an area that they grow just kind of conventional, non-organic peppercorns, just moving by weight. And these two became friends over going to some organic farming conventions. And they said, you know what? Let's start an organic peppercorn farm together. <laughs> and while most people grow these peppercorns on, like, stacks of concrete blocks, these guys have planted trees. And so the peppercorn vines mm-hmm. climb up the trees. Um, instead of using fertilizers and all that, they, they're running chickens and 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 turkeys and ducks and all that Jeez. stuff just around around the ground to kind of naturally fertilize. Um, and then when they're when they're picking, they're waiting for them to fully ripen, which is really tricky because peppercorns ripen a different. So one vine of peppercorns can have half ripe and half unripe peppercorns, and so they're very carefully picking these peppercorns um, and then sorting them and all that. And so what the flavor ends up being is that you have this really clean, beautiful heat. But when you smell it, it smells fruity. It smells like a plum. It smells like a, it's got this like extra dimension to it. And it's, it's so cool to take a peppercorn, which is something that is often kind of a throwaway spice. So you just put on stuff without thinking too much about it and turning it into like a star flavor ingredient. Um, the, this is definitely, this is definitely, uh, uh, a really fun way to kind of kick up even simple dishes. Yeah. I mean, I thought the harvesting of it would be a major, major operation with all these different colors. Yeah, we went we went and picked peppercorns with them for half a day, and even stayed on the farm with them. Um, Did you and, really? and we broke their ladder. We we were climbing up this ladder, and we said, "Hey, this is a little dinky. Are you sure this is okay?" And they're like, "Yeah, this holds four people." And what they should have said is, "This holds four Vietnamese-sized people." And the ladder buckled under our Western weight. <laughs> so funny. So that was the end of the harvest for that day. Was was when when the foreigners came in and broke their ladder. Did you buy them a new ladder? <laughs> we offered to go and buy, to go with them, and all this and that. They were just happy that, that they didn't send us to the hospital. <laughs> but but we did end up buying their first kind of lot of peppercorns. We set them up to be their own exporters. We, we really kind of came through on, on this is our favorite thing to do with the business, is find farmers that are being really thoughtful and are doing an exceptional job growing these peppercorns, but normally wouldn't have an audience kind of outside of, the people coming by to buy from the commodity market and all that. And so we instead bought it from them, sent it to the seaport, loaded it on a boat, and now we have our first batch of purple peppercorns here on our site. See, now, I mean, you, your mission in all this is really way beyond just uh, acquiring spices for resale, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that we, we want to try, we believe that if we can find a way to support the livelihood of the farmers and to help them grow, then we will able to get we will be able to get incredibly high quality and fresh spices. So by most of the buyers go to the farmers and say, "What's the least that we can possibly pay you?" And we go to the farmers and say, "What's the thing that you think that you grow that's the best? What are you the most excited about? What would you love to keep growing?" Mm-hmm. And the farmers point us to these exceptional spices, and because we pay them directly, we kind of cut out all these intermediaries that normally kind of mix good and bad lots together. Time passes, quality goes down, and price goes up. We can just put all of that towards the farmers, and we also try to find other ways to do new new lines of revenue. So maybe they're not cleaning enough. Maybe they're not sorting enough. Maybe they could do an extra grinding step. Like how else can we do so that they don't instead sell this, like basically just the spice by themselves? How do we make sure that we can pay them the top, top, top price we can possibly pay them? And that's been a really fun and interesting exercise to work with the farmers on, on kind of building this livelihood. Now, Ori. Oh, so yeah, so the one, so the one extra one is our true star anise. Um, and what? so most true of the world's star, star anise grows on the northern Vietnamese, southern Chinese border, where those two countries meet. And that's where these trees grow, this crazy star-shaped, you know, spice. And it's a critical spice for pho. It's one of the five spices in the Chinese five-spice blend. Um, 
And as far as I'm concerned, it's such an interesting mm-hmm. flavor because you get kind of sweet and tart and savory and, I don't know, I have a, a jar of it here. It's like mentholy and licorice and it just so much comes out of this one spice that it, it, it spell always it, so blows I me away. Spell that. Star, S-T-A-R, Anise, A-N-I-S-E. Yeah, we we have it. It's not it's not from Vietnam, I don't think, but yeah, I don't know. we do have some somewhere. Yeah, so that's what that's what we were able to to bring in from this in in northern Vietnam. And again, we met a bunch of different farmers there, and most of the farmers we said, "Hey, we love what you're doing, but it needs to be cleaned a little bit better. It needs to be sorted a little bit better, and we're willing to pay you." A lot more for that. Are you willing to do it? And most of the farmers were like, no thanks the way it is. Oh, really? I sell my spice as it is, and that's that. And that's totally fine. Totally their right. But then we met these two cousins that were growing their own star anise, and then they built this beautiful, clean facility for drying it. Um, and then they started buying from their neighbors, and, and they became the drying facility for the whole kind of town of, of growers in that area. And we said, we love what you're doing. We tasted it. It was so good. And we said, can you help us out? We just need it to be sorted and clean. And they said, absolutely, by when do you need it? We can have it ready in 48 hours. And we were like, these are our gals. <laughs> these are the ones oh, that, that are going to be able to work with us. And so we just brought in our second harvest from there. There's a summer harvest and a winter harvest. Right now we have the summer harvest in because in the summer you get you get bigger, juicier fruits that come off the trees. And in the winter, because it's a little bit colder, normally they dry it in the sun. Because it's colder in the winter, they smoke it first to get it like two-thirds of the way towards being dry, yeah. and then they dry it in the sun the rest of the way. So the winter one ends up being smokier and a little bit smaller fruits and a little more savory. And so every six months, we bring in whatever the, the latest batch is, we bring it in, and it's, it's really just a powerful spice that can do a lot. A little bit goes a long way. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it, it, every day is an adventure in, in your business now. And you said you're off for India, so when can we talk to you about what you find there? Yeah, so we're at the end of February. We're, we're heading to India for three weeks. Um, one is we want to set up time to meet. It's a turmeric harvest, and we have our turmeric f- partner farmers there. Oh, so wow. we want to go visit their farms and meet with them and see how they harvest the turmeric, which by itself is a really interesting spice because these are two single-estate farms that primarily grow sugarcane. And sugarcane where we get sugar from, of course, is, is takes a lot of water. And turmeric being a rhizome, being like a network of, right. of um, and again, I'm, I, every time I say something that's not technical, I feel like people are gonna, are gonna send me hate mail. <laughs> turmeric is technically a rhizome, it looks like a root. Um, but because it's like that, it holds water in the soil really well. So they started planting this turmeric in the soil in order to, to hold water in the soil and reduce their water needs and become a more efficient farm. And they did that, but they also produced this exceptionally buttery, exceptionally sweet turmeric that, that, that has just been really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So we want to meet them. We're going to visit some mango farmers that are growing amchur. We're going to visit some black cardamom farmers and also some folks growing some chilies and peppercorns and kind of see what else we come along with along the way. Wow. <laughs> oh, I think it sounds so exciting. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this is going to be an ongoing part of our show, by the way, because you have an ongoing drama every every month. <laughs> just about. <laughs> we so, love it. You should come with us on a spice sourcing trip. Oh, I know. <laughs> Join us for a few days in India. Oh wow! Yeah, um, India maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, but yeah, so. You'll, I'll be in touch and I'll find out what you came up with. And, uh, I'm, I'm worried that you're, you're gonna be really overextended because you've gotten so much publicity in all these magazines. I think it's been really, really exciting, the idea that like, you know, people are starting to think about their spices in a different way. And we, we think about it also in a way like on one hand you're supporting the livelihood of these farmers, on the other hand, you know, like, it's like we've all had that farmer's market apple where we were like, I know a grocery store apples taste like that have been in cold storage for a year. And then you yeah. take a bite out of that farmer's market and you're like, oh, right, this is what it should taste like. And so we've been really excited that, that folks have been thinking about their spices in a different way and not just saying these are just colorful powders in my pantry, but, like, these are actually, they come from plants and nuts and seeds and trees and all that and, and doing that. And we've been able to 
we've been pushing ourselves and we've been able to kind of keep up with, with demand and get our spices in more and more hands of home cooks. But it's really exciting to have our two-person company and, you know, hopefully we won't be two-person forever. So it's, it's, with all the press, it's been really, we've been really fortunate and this is pushing us to, to figure out how we grow in a sustainable way that supports our farmers, that helps set expectations for them on how much to grow. Because most spices are only one or two harvests a year, and so we need to really, you know, be aligned with the harvest oh, and sure. kind of guess on how much we're going to make. And then number two is about us just trying to figure out how to grow as a company and do it in a way that we can, you know, get more spices out to more people, which we're so, so excited about. Yeah, well, you're the business person, I understand. So I'm glad to meet you and talk to you. Hello to Ethan. Enjoy your trip to India. And, uh, yeah, don't get too dazzled there because that's, that's where you go for spices, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just a little bit of eat, pray, love, you know, for, for <laughs> Burlap and Barrel. <laughs> but but you guys can find us on BurlapandBarrel.com or on Instagram at, at @BurlapandBarrel. We, whenever we're on a sourcing trip, we share a lot of photos from what's going on. So if you want to follow oh, good. along, That's nice to know. Instagram is the best place to do it. And on our site, we have 45 different spices for folks to check out. And, and we'd love to hear what you think and, and get some spices over to, to your listeners. I, I appreciate that also, the, the information you just gave. And, and I was going to ask for it, but you, you explained it so that people will know exactly how to get to the I mean, right directly. And I, I think that that's it. The Instagram is great. Um, Burlap and Barrel, um, Ori, Zohar, and Ethan, thank you both. And uh, thank you for listeners for trying to upgrade your whole spice concept because that's what this is about. Thanks, Lori. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Bye-bye. These are a couple of really brave guys, huh? Oh, yeah. I don't know know that I'd be going the places they go. We were invited, but I don't (laughs) know that we'd... (laughs) Um, Yeah, but they, they really have a good time doing it, too. Yeah, right. Well, anyway... Right after, right after the break, we'll be a little more stateside, but sim- similarly adve- adventures in various different taste sensations coming to us from California. So don't go my way. We'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And welcome back. Next up, we want to introduce you to another entrepreneur. Um, and in, in this case, he's with, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful sounding company, Sonoma Brinery. They make pickles and sauerkraut and he, all those good he, things. He actually started out just growing cucumbers and then I guess yeah. he got, <laughs> I, guess, I, guess, I guess he got a surplus. Anyhow, uh, here's David Erith. He's going to tell you more more than you ever needed to know about pickles. I've got a new best friend, <laughs> David Erith, <laughs> because he makes pickles, and boy, do I love pickles. Um, the company is Sonoma Brinery, which I think is a brilliant name, David. And Thank you, Anne. Yeah, tell us a little bit. I mean, you're certainly on trend. Everybody loves pickled things, fermented things. Um, it's, you know, it's our health focus right now. Um, when did you get this idea? When did you come up with this company and your products? Well, in uh, 2004, I was wrapping up a 30-year career in uh, technology, uh, and uh, had worked as an electronics engineer. Uh, but during that period of time, uh, I had been uh, growing uh, cucumbers in my garden and making pickles uh, in the summer and fall, and uh, uh, 
the kind of pickle I made was the one that uh, is typical for folks on the East Coast, uh, barrel-fermented, uh, kosher-style deli pickle. And uh, yet out here in the West Coast, uh, there, there just weren't any. So uh, I had the brilliant idea at some point that uh, I would take on that problem of there being no real great uh, half-sour uh, pickle here on the West Coast true fermented, no vinegar, half sour. And uh, I decided to solve that problem. So uh, in 2004, uh, I went into business uh, fermenting pickles and uh, putting them into jars myself and putting them into cases and driving them around <laughs> the stores. And the rest is history. Um, we, uh, we started with that. We then went to uh, sauerkraut where... Uh, the first out here to put live culture, true live culture products on the shelf, on the, uh, on the standard grocery shelf. And, um, it became quite a, uh, quite a thing. And uh, I think the fact that, uh, that we, that, uh, we were early to the fermentation, uh, party was very good. Frankly, I did not understand at the time I got into the business that fermentation uh, was done with things that we now call probiotics, and so I'd say it was good fortune we uh, landed there, but we were the uh, the original guys that put this live culture stuff on the standard grocery shelf uh, and uh, got it out of, there were other uh, people making sauerkraut, but mainly if you wanted that, you had to go to a kind of a health food store or some other, uh, you know, more exotic location. I mean, what is the commercial uh, stuff you get that's not live culture? If you buy it in jars in the supermarket, it's not live culture, right? No, they, uh, in order to ensure a longer shelf life and stability, uh, that stuff that you see in those jars often, if it doesn't clearly say that it's live culture, has been pasteurized. And uh, the idea is to kill all of the microbes that are beneficial uh, in order to ensure that it lasts for two to five years. Right. And uh, so we say on our labels, if you look, every one of our labels says fresh, and that is really what we are all about. When we make sauerkraut, I think the distinction between ourselves and some of the gigantic manufacturers um, is that we build our, our both our pickles and our sauerkraut to order. We are a just-in-time manufacturer. So when we make this stuff, um, we want to get it to you in the freshest possible state where, in the case of the pickles, I think the half-sour barrel fermented kosher is about the king of pickles. I don't know that you can find a better pickle than that. Um, and in the case of sauerkraut, it turns out that that early stage sauerkraut, uh, has with it the, all of the wonderful characteristics of cabbage. It's crisp and, and flavorful. And at the same time, if you look at the microbiology, this is when it has the, the largest amount of, uh, probiotic content. Dave, what, is somebody playing football in the background? What's happening in the background there? Uh, we're, we're, I'm sorry, somebody just walked in, we're writing it down. <laughs> in any event. So I love sauerkraut. I'm so glad it's healthy. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, uh, sauerkraut is an interesting, uh, piece of culinary artwork, and I think it's so, uh, somewhat misunderstood in that I think people associate sauerkraut kind of strictly with, uh, the ballpark and hot dogs and, what have you, but uh, the way I look at it, it's the sauerkraut has a very, especially early stage sauerkraut, has a very mellow uh, uh, acid and it augments any number of things. I mean, you can put sauerkraut in anything from scrambled eggs to a grilled cheese sandwich to uh, braising uh, various different meats or put it in soups or any place that where you have something that's rich and salty and you need a little acid to complete that uh, salt-fat-acid triangle, sauerkraut is really a wonderful thing to add because it has great flavor. It is terrifically nutritious. 
Yeah, and provides just that right amount of lactic acid to kind of give things a little bit of sparkle that they might otherwise lack. And kimchi, too. And kimchi as well. We don't make kimchi, but I am a great fan of it. I am, too. We we have a restaurant um, in town that makes, in season, of course, sauerkraut soup and also a kimchi soup. I love mm-hmm. both of them. Um, well, I'll tell you, the, I, the sauerkraut soups, various sauerkraut soups, and there's a, kind of a variety of sauerkraut soups, are absolutely uh, wonderful and uh, something really great to eat on a cold winter day. So now, like, how many products do you have? We have 10 separate products. Uh, we have uh, four different uh, types of sauerkraut. And we have six different types of pickles, ranging from uh, the fermented uh, uh, half sour to our dill spear. We have uh, two different bread and butter pickles, and uh, we have uh, a uh, jalapeno escabeche, and we have a, a deli style dill chip, um, which is more styled after the Western. Uh, Western deli, what I call the Western deli flavor. If you go, when I was a kid, out here in the West, we didn't have those uh, fermented uh, style pickles. We had pickles made with vinegar, and there was kind of a unique flavor associated with a Western deli that was distinct from the Eastern delis, mm-hmm. and I tried, to cap- I tried to capture both of them, one with the Manhattan style uh, whole kosher and the other with our dill spears and our uh, dill deli chips. Now, if you don't use vinegar, what do you use? Well, we use vinegar on the, uh, the dill spears and um, uh, with on our bread and butters because with sugar you can't ferment uh, you can't ferment a sweet uh, you can't ferment a sweet pickle. Uh, so we uh, uh, do use vinegar um, on about thirty percent. About thirty percent of the products that we sell are made with vinegar, and seventy percent are pure fermented. Now, now you're in you're in Healdsburg, which which is yes. the, which is the center of of wine country around there. So, yeah. So he, is, so here's a question. What, what kind of yes. wine do you drink with your pickles? <laughs> well, no, that's a that's a, a good question, and you know, it really it really sort of depends. But uh, you know, I can I can certainly imagine that our bread and butters pair well with things like the Verstraminer or Sauvignon Blanc, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, our uh, uh, heavier what I think of heavier pickles like our all spears and our uh, uh, barrel fermented uh, koshers uh, pair up with things that you might envision drinking a, a heartier red with. But and, and in, let me let me also point out that not only do we make a lot of good wine out here, we also make a lot of good beer. And oh, <laughs> so sure, right. well with beer. Yeah, the Bear Republic Brewery is here in Healdsburg. And they produce a, a lovely collection of beers that also pair very nicely with our. Now, do, does Charlie Palmer still still own the the restaurant in the hotel there, Healdsburg Inn? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. You remember Good him? guy. Charlie. He's a really nice guy. Yes, he is. Um, uh, he's a kind of some local color here for us in in Healdsburg, which is sort of a small and rural town and. Yeah, we'll Charlie arrived. <laughs> Would you believe Charlie I arrived, every, every, everything changed? Would you yeah, believe I got lost in Hillsburg in the main square? <laughs> no, no, that was well, I, I no, that was Sonoma. That, that was Sonoma. Oh, I thought it was no, it was it was downtown, beautiful downtown Sonoma. Oh, that got lost. Uh, she said, she said, pick, yeah. she said, pick me up here. So I was there <laughs> to pick her up when she said, and and she, she was gone. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, okay, so the Sonoma Square is bigger than the Healdsburg Square. 
<laughs> right, and right, right. Where you can, well, you can yeah. see one end to the other. Well, no, what's little, that, what little. is that uh, charming hotel we stayed at in Hillsburg? It was called, it's called the Hillsburg Inn, I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And the Charlie Palmer. Yeah, the, the, Charlie yeah, Palmer yeah. has a restaurant there. He owns, and, the, he owns the restaurant. Yeah. 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 Yes. And yes, there are other restaurants. I think there are other restaurants yeah. we like. There are. There, 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 was a, there was a Michelin two-star restaurant on the next street in a hotel that I think might have closed. Which one uh, was Yes, that, that was Cyrus. And that right, was, right. Uh, Cyrus, that. right. With the cocktails, the great cocktails. Oh, that's right. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. That was that was uh, Scott Scott Beatty. Right, yes, right. Where did he go? There. He disappeared. And, well, no, he hasn't. He's over at Meadowwood, over in Napa oh, Valley. Oh, okay. Meadowwood, So he's still... Michelin, another Michelin three-star. And Scotty has uh, published a book. Right, we um, saw it, I think. And... On mixology, and he is definitely, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest mixologists of our time. And uh, yeah, uh, there was quite a lot of talent there. I'd like to use him as an example um, of the West Coast take on cocktails, as opposed to the kinds of cocktails you get in um, um, in, in, in Manhattan, for example. You know, yeah, they're totally yeah, well, different in the same. Modern cocktail movement—they're totally the opposite. One, one of our one yeah. of our one of our best adventures out in that area was was when we had, we had a tour and a tasting and lunch at the Jordan Winery. Oh yeah, that was uh-huh. which which has got to be the, one one of the most God given beautiful spots you've ever seen in your whole life. Yeah. Well, that's a, that east. We're on the, I'm on the same ridge where I live. It's the same ridge as the Jordan Winery, one mile south. Jordan Winery on that same on the same ridge. You just yeah, keep kind of keep on going south there. There's a little road uh, past the Jordan Winery. You go down, and it is God's country. That is for sure. Now, now you when you are expanding your line, I mean, are you just expanding like your market or the number? Of, and now they're they're pickling everything. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're... like strawberries. Everybody's pickling strawberries all of a sudden. Why? <laughs> yeah, I, my, my uh, attitude about uh, pickling in, in sort of is reflected in the philosophy of how we, uh, how we have developed our line is that pickles, uh, our pickles are a general ingredient that we offer to our customers as something that they can use in their pantry uh, to build their own culinary uh, delights. And so we tend to stay away from the more exotic things like pickled strawberries or other <laughs> things. That, while, while I think that's a fabulous idea, it's not the kind of thing that we uh, that you could imagine using as generally as you can imagine using the various pickles that we make. Mm-hmm. And one of the, if I could add one other one other thought to what we do, if you taste each of our pickles, what you're going to find is that each one of them has a very distinct flavor, mm-hmm. and this is in, this is intentional. If you uh, quite a few uh, picklers, some of the biggest picklers in the U.S. tend to have uh, different uh, kinds of pickles. You know, that are steers or whole or cut or whatever, but they use the same flavor profile. Each of our pickles comes with a different and very distinct uh, profile, but each one is intended to be incorporated into something else that you as a chef in your own kitchen are uh, making. And so we, we tend to stay away from some of the exotic ingredients like seaweed or, uh, or, uh, any other flavors that, while good, may be very specialized. And uh, if you want something like that, you can build it yourself using our base ingredients. Now, give us and, an example and, you know, of what you're talking about. Like uh, the chef takes well, what and makes what. Okay, so so let's let's say that you are interested in doing a uh, uh, Hungarian or or. Kind of Central European braise with pork, 
And uh, instead of me selling to you a uh, sauerkraut that already has the flavor ingredients, and let's say in this case, um, uh, paprika or other, some very strong peppery flavor, um, that this is something that you can do yourself. Take our product, mix together the uh, seasoning ingredients that you want, the direction you want to go, and if you want, I mean, if you're serving, for example, an Asian dish, and you'd like to have something that has maybe more ginger, some garlic, a little uh, uh, aramaic seaweed or something of that sort, these, those things are all commercially available in Asian stores, and those can be added to what we do. So instead of me trying to say to you, look, here's, here's where this has to go in terms of the flavor, I'm going to give you the best example of the general version of it that you can then use to steer it in the direction that you want it to go. And if you want to put it on your hot dog, that's fine. If you want to put it together with some nice, uh, uh, incorporated into some spring rolls with uh, ginger flavoring uh, or other types of flavoring that might be appropriate for that, then that's absolutely uh, doable with what we make. But uh, the idea being that we are... We want to be an ingredient in your pantry. I see. Now, now that, there's a there's a missing pickle in this country. And what is that? God, God's, <laughs> I know what it is. God's country deserves what in England is called a pickled onion, and it, and it's it's and a, a big brown it's, onion. It's it's a, it's a size it's almost the size of a golf ball. <laughs> and and when when I visit my brother and our our nephews at Christmas time, they always have the most humongous jar of these pickled onions. And Peter's <laughs> and, and and we and we go through them within the week. We go through them. So, sometimes uh, we have to, sometimes we have to buy another jar. Well, you're gonna have to send me a picture of this. I'd like to I'd like to see that. That sounds delicious. Oh, it is. We've tried. There's not a thing on the market here like it. And uh, it just got to be too messy. Are trying to bring it back to the states. <laughs> yeah, they actually used to. There was Giant Eagle used to import one particular variety, but it, but it, it, it wasn't, was it wasn't any it wasn't any good. It, no, it wasn't good. It wasn't wasn't any. I, I guess you got to you got to have it within a certain length of time, and yeah, ship, shipping yeah. shipping it all, all the way across the Atlantic on a boat it just doesn't it just doesn't make it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, anyhow, you you have a, a really clear-sighted vision of where you're going with this company, and uh, David Arith, and again, listeners, it's Sonoma Brinery, and you like pits, the pickles. You're going to love this his product, and also the sauerkraut. Um, I I just uh, yeah, I'm, we're still. Eating our way through them, and I like the juice. I, I drink the juice. <laughs> well, that, that juice is going to make you. It's going to uh, add ten years to your life. It's going to, you know, cure warts. And if any of the above isn't true, call me up and I'll. Don't tell me it's going to make well, hair grow in my chest because I don't that. really want that. <laughs> not, I, I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to look for any. Well, from an, for an illustration of a real pickled onion, and I'll send it off to you, David. In the, <laughs> me, right, in the meantime, thanks, thanks, thanks for, for joining us. us. Okay, you bet, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Appreciate David. the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And finally, to wrap up, we have a discussion with Justin about his company's Rubicon Barbecue Flank Steak Jerky, which I can assure you is quite good because it's all gone. I ate yeah, it all. Yeah, she ate it all. See, <laughs> see, I, I ate all the candy, but she gets all, she gets all, all the, the jerky. <laughs> all right. Here's, here's the jerky man. 
I find myself repeatedly um, reaching into one of these little bags <laughs> of Rubicon <laughs> barbecue flank steak jerky. Boy, it's good. I mean, it's uh, well, Justin, you've been working this out, but you you come from this point of view and this product because of your expertise in barbecue. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, and my passion for food and doing things a little bit differently, not not just relying on the status quo, uh, but, you know, in any of my recipes that I've developed, uh, including this wonderful jerky product, um, you know, trying to trying to stand out from the crowd and produce some really flavorful, high-quality, uh, in this case, jerky. Well, Rubicon Barbecue is going to be more than just jerky, I understand. Yes, actually, the, the company was formed in 2015 with the idea to uh, really become expert barbecue consultants and create uh, catering uh, pop-ups to uh, really the craft brewery scene in Chicago, um, breweries that didn't necessarily invest in kitchens and have chefs. Um, so those were my original clients. Um you know, basically creating pop-up dinners and events uh, with the breweries that, you know, possibly they were releasing new beers um, and wanted some some different outside-the-box catering options for their customers. So you cook? I do. That, that's really my passion, yes. Okay. Uh, it started, you know, started when I was a young, a young boy. I worked in a number of commercial kitchens, um, both uh, Mexican concepts and Italian concepts. Um, and then, you know, in college, just found myself cooking for my friends and, and family and roommates, and it just kind of took off from there. Huh. Now, back to the flank steak jerky. I mean, I don't, I don't know of another jerky company that deals with flank steak. Why, why flank steak? It is tasty. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, again, it, it goes back to wanting to, to to stick out from the crowd. You know, there's a lot of a lot of options out there. You know, for jerky, um, you know, I find a lot of them to be you know bland and and rubbery and tough. And I wanted something that uh, cut a meat that would yeah, tough is for sure. <laughs> Yours yeah. is not tough. Yours yeah. is soft, kind of. Some of the commercial ones will break your teeth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But exactly. Jackie's having it, it's a moment because I don't know why, but uh, and there's a lot of competition out there in, in the field of jerky, right? Yeah, there is. It's it's highly competitive, um, and for me, it was to try to find a manufacturing facility that would think outside the box with me um, and uh, would embrace, um, you know, processing uh, flank steak jerky because it's not easy. I uh, when I was test marketing the product several years ago, I was doing a lot of the, the meat cutting and, the, and, and that in uh, my commercial leased kitchen. And, um, you know, it would take hours and hours to, to trim the, the flank just right. So uh, you could, you know, smoke it appropriately and, and dry it um, and produce the product. And uh, luckily I found a, a partner, a manufacturing partner, a USDA, USDA facility that, uh, invested a lot of money in a um, a special uh, meat processing saw that would be able to uh, produce the flank efficiently, but in in uh, you know kind of mass produce it. So it was it was it was actually a great partnership. Yeah, well, we've gotten all manner of jerky. I thought the oddest one we got was mushroom jerky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Have you had that? I, I have tried it, yes, yeah, I have, and, and uh, maybe, yeah, definitely the, the meatless, you know, the, the meatless products are definitely uh, a, a trending uh, a trending approach to jerky, for sure. Well, now, now why, why Rubicon? I mean, are you a Shakespearean scholar, or are you a <laughs> scholar of uh, Italian Rubicon history? classical, it's um, Roman. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a river actually in Italy, and uh, yeah, we've, cro- of- we've crossed it any number of times. Have we really? Yeah, <laughs> we have. <laughs> well, Rubicon was really, um, you know, the the initial name that I came came up with, um, mainly because of its meaning. Um, you know, I'm uh, definitely a, a nature person by by heart, and like to get out for a good hike and participate in endurance athletics. Um, as well, and um, Rubicon is really representing a, a journey, um, you know, for for me and the vision behind the brand. Um, that you know, especially with barbecue and and jerky, you know, it, it's a journey. It's it's a time commitment that uh, that you that we've that we take um, to not only produce it, but uh, you know, it, it's it's that point of no return where you put in the amount of time and effort into the journey and there's no turning back. you got to keep going forward. Yeah, what's it? There's a, a penalty to crossing the Rubicon, right? War? Well, you, right. Well, you weren't, you, <laughs> yeah, you, weren't, you weren't supposed to. You weren't supposed to cross the Rubicon. You, you, weren't, you weren't supposed to and it was, I guess it was C, Julius Caesar making a statement. Right, Absolutely. <laughs> Now, Definitely. You, you keep mentioning this Italian beef. Could you explain that to us? Pardon, one more time? You said that you keep mentioning Italian beef. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, again, it, it goes back to, you know, trying to trying to stick out and try to do things a little bit differently. I was self-taught in, in the way of uh, becoming a pit master, a barbecue pit master. Um, but, you know, with all those you know, traditional techniques in the various regions in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to stick out a little bit, so it was literally trying to come up with recipes. You know, that would um, upset the status quo, and so the Italian beef is a is a sandwich that um, that I have on my catering menu that um, incorporates kind of that old world uh, you know approach to Italian beef, going back to um traveling out east um there was a there was actually a uh a, a uh, restaurant in the reading market in Philadelphia Reading um, dear Reading Reading thank you Reading terminal yes so this place called we'll get back a long way in Philadelphia yeah, exactly so the Knicks I don't yeah I'm sure you know that that name but that was very inspiring to me so I basically Absolutely, just I found myself on a business trip there uh, a few years back, and um, I think I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the Knicks. It was so delicious, but uh, you know, it inspired me to to go back, use my you know my traditional barbecuing techniques on the smoker to come up with you know this Italian beef sandwich that uh, uh, is just out of this world. It, it gets a lot of accolades, and um, people request it. All the time, so so in a way, in a way, it's a little bit like a Philly cheesesteak sandwich. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's got uh, it's it's really absolutely delicious. Uh, so it's it's basically um, it's uh, the, the 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 roast beef um, done at a little bit higher of a temp, but smoked with with oak and hickory wood, um, then sliced really thin, and then the sandwich consists of bro- broccoli rabe. Uh, greens, um, some jardinera, and provolone. It's just absolutely delicious. Oh my goodness! It's making me hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> you just do, you're just even thinking about it. For huh? Five years um, trying to get this together. I mean, it's not kind of spinning forward very quickly. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's it, the company's been in business for for five years, but you know, the the concept behind it's been. I've been you know thinking and developing. It for you know, probably fifteen twenty years, you know, and trying to figure out how how to um, how to build you know the brand and and produce these great products. Um, it was kind of an interesting story about the jerky. So I I basically had these these clients of mine that I would you know go and do catering events and pop ups with, and um, one of them had asked me to to make jerky, and I actually was just really surprised and I had never made jerky before and um, wasn't sure quite what to do 
um, to get started with it um, and actually said no initially and they kept pushing and pushing and asking me to make jerky because all of the other meats and things that I had smoked turned out wonderful and um, so my very first batch of jerky was made with flank steak um, and the foundation of the marinade uh, for the flank steak jerky uh, in my kitchen in the oven believe it or not um, a gas oven with the door cracked at the lowest temperature it could go um, and luckily I didn't blow up the apartment at the time, but, uh, it actually inspired me to invest in a commercial dryer, um, work on the, uh, the process and, um, and sure enough, you know, that's, that's really how it started four years ago was, uh, in a, in a gas oven, uh, with the, with the oven door cracked for 12 hours <laughs> and, uh, um, it was the beginning of the uh, the dynasty here with the flank steak jerky. So, so part part of the secret is you cook it for a very long time. Exactly. At a very low temperature, and then and yeah. then and then you you harness the products you'd already created, which right, which exactly. which, are, which are rubs and marinades. Exactly. So, exactly. So and what's next with this company then? Well, you know, we're we're actually uh, the, the jerky is available on my website, uh, rubiconbbq.com. Uh, I've actually um, uh, partnered with uh, kind of a joint venture uh, with other craft jerky purveyors to create a Amazon Fresh uh, store that will be launching within the next couple of weeks here, um, oh, good. which okay. will take the product nationally. So uh, after that, you know, I've, I've actually done a lot of research and development on um, – on different cuts of meat, so I think uh, what's next is to start, you know, developing some different flavors, some different cuts of meat, yeah. uh, to continue to disrupt the marketplace. There's a, uh, a chain of jerky stores. Now, what are they? They're associated with uh, shopping malls. Is that correct? Right, right. Yes, yeah. You know yeah. about them? Uh, actually, no, I don't. Oh, well, we interviewed somebody who has some franchise. It's a franchise operation. Oh, okay. And, and it's, uh, all the stores sell, the only thing they sell is jerky. And they're attached to shopping malls. And okay. I don't know what else. I can't remember what it's called. But, but I got news for you. It's, 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 it's not nearly as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, so we won't use their name on the air. Right. <laughs> We'll have to do some research there. Well, yeah, check it out. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. It's a, it's a big operation, and they've got a lot of money invested. So you might want to check it out. If for well, no I would other have, reason yeah. that you could probably sell your jerky through these this existing chain of jerky well, I, shops. I, pre- I appreciate that, and I will definitely look into it. Um, I we're definitely ready to produce uh, to mass produce um, the product. Um, we want to get to the point where we're producing, you know, upwards of 1,000 to 2,000 pounds at a time. Uh-huh. Uh, but we do have the capacity to do that. Um, the uh, the actual bag just went through a rebranding to incorporate UPC codes. Uh, but the idea is to get it out there and into, you know, some really large national chains. Um, we are retail ready. So um, definitely looking forward to expanding it across the country. Well, Justin, good for you, and uh, a, a lot of uh, success for you, and good luck, and uh, well, yeah, keep us posted. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and I enjoy talking with you today. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye now. Okay, sweetheart. There we, there we go. Another, another show in the bag. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, it used to be in the can, I guess. Yeah, well, it, used to, it could be in the can too, <laughs> I guess. Anyway, we, we hope you'll enjoy all, all the spiciness that we've been talking about today. And uh, we'll be back same time, same place next week. Who knows what will be the subject of the program? We can never tell. But, we, but we'll see you then. And what do we say now? Bye-bye. Bye-bye.